Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. My name is Andy Libson. I'm joined by with uh, Kenny Zapeta. Um, and once again, uh, Jessica's not here. She's off on a vacation. Eduardo's not here. He's off on vacation. Um, and once again, it's just us. Um, and before we start with our episode, I want to remind people that we are online at what-s-left.webnote.com. You can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notification, share your favorite episode, and jot down our information wherever you found this episode. So um, today we're going to carry on. Uh, Kenny and I are going to carry on with our reading of the Communist Manifesto. Um, we're calling it part two, but really it's part two of part one of the Communist Manifesto, which is titled uh, Bourgeoisie and Proletarians. And last episode, the section we covered really was more talking about the bourgeoisie. Um, well, maybe Kenny, if you want to try to summarize some of the things that you either captured from that last episode, um, what would you say about that for people who maybe didn't check that episode out, although we think they should check that episode out? Yeah, I think it, it's like a, the first part we discussed was more like a synthesis of the development of the bourgeoisie power, you know, how they came to power and the sort of like the the forces that push them, um, you know, to push the system capitalism and the revolutionizing nature of, of that process of the bourgeoisie coming to power. And um, <clears throat> I think that, that, that that's what I would say. Uh, and then I think in this part, we're going to uh, talk about a little more of the proletariat. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and again, but it's like a, it's an organic process in a way, I guess, but because one thing leads to the other. Um, and I think that's what we're going to find out that Marx and Engels are arguing. Yeah. And the only thing I would add is just the notion put forward that if you're going to understand how human history is going to change the Marxist and Engels notion that you have to look at the divide, at the divisions of classes within that society, because they're saying that those, those class divisions are, and the conflict between them is a motor force for, for, for change. So in trying to identify what, how could capitalism change and how could it be revolutionized, meaning how could it be taken down and a new form of society be brought up, not, not reformed, but destroyed and a new, new system put in its place. Marx and Engels feel like they have to identify a new class that is capable of doing that since class divisions are and and they're and largely the economic relationship, the, the way they're organized for production, is what def des defines a given society. And and I think that the first part also gives a taste as to how ambitious this work was. I think, in terms of like uh, creating an analysis of how history moves, how history develops, and so it it takes so many, um, I guess, uh, fields of knowledge. Um, you know, because I think, especially now, you know, a lot of knowledge is segregated from each other and, and they do like bring a lot of things together, you know, anthropology, political economy and all this stuff, philosophy to a degree. Uh, so I think it's very, you know, that's why I find it, you know, exciting. I, I'm also a nerd that enjoys this kind of stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's where I'll lead off because um, there's a few people who made some interesting comments. I want to share with you, Kenny, you might have, did you read Jessica's thing? Did you ever? I haven't. I've been okay. at work. Okay. Like, you'll um, you'll hear it now. But um, 
I think these comments to me speak to what we hope our audience gets out of this, because I think in different ways, the people who commented here really speak to, I think, why, well, you and I did this because I thought it'd be fun, but also I think Jessica speaks to, I think, why I think we're kind of doing this. Um, what she wrote is this. She, she, I asked her to kind of edit the, because I didn't have anybody to look at it. So she, she just checked, make sure the episode was fine. She goes, uh, this was awesome. I really enjoyed listening and thought you guys did an excellent job balancing the actual reading of the text with engaging discussion and connecting things to our current fourth and our current context, fourth industrial revolution, et cetera. Especially found interesting the parts where either or both of you took a minute to question or challenge something in the text or compare it to something Marx wrote later or elsewhere. And then she writes, bring on the rural idiocy. Definitely, since you wrote this, definitely don't want to turn the podcast into a book club, but I think it'd be cool to do an episode like this every once in a while where it's part read along, part broader discussion. I genuinely think a massive part of the dire state of society is how little most people read. Maybe Eduardo and I can think of a good anarchist text to discuss in the future. And I really agree with what she wrote there. I mean, that's the whole intent of this show, right? <laughs> to kind of discuss, have a conversation and, you know, be able to have a safe space to share opinions. Uh, and, you know, I'm so down for that, Jessica, to read yeah. that anarchist text and, yeah. <clears throat> and Jeff Strahl wrote something I thought was interesting. Um, and this was a question he posed while he was writing a, a longer thing. Um, Kenny, you didn't read this, did you? No, I did not. Okay, this was just part of what he wrote. And this, again, is sort of, again, why we're doing this. Um, he writes, is fourth industrial revolution doomed to failure because it acts to replace human labor with dead labor, i.e. machinery, which, unlike human labor, cannot produce surplus value, um, meaning machinery can't produce surplus value. A question arises as to whether the system being created will even be capitalist and hence dependent upon the creation of surplus value in its real abstract meaning, namely social energy. Could it be a total command society run by computers and digital script assigned on the basis of convenience and complicity, not subject to the law of value? That's a question he's posing. Uh, like I said in my comment on the new on the new video by Allison, Jason, and Lynn, Ari, the Texas blockchain massacre, which people should check out, I don't think such a system can realistically be created due to worsening shortages of critical raw materials and energy sources. Allison seems to think all such problems are surmountable because some think tank puts forth, forth a vision of society with 3D prints, printers and, and all the materials it needs and draws energy from human motion. She doesn't bother subjecting it to a careful analysis of energy and material requirements necessary to create such a structure. But I think it's a good question to throw out there. I think there's a lot there that I, I'd like to maybe engage a little bit in. Um, you know, because I do think that, I mean, we've mentioned it, that we're moving into some sort of new order of things. Um, and increasingly, we've mentioned that it might reflect some feudal order, right? Like a techno-fascist feudal order, at least in my mind, that's how I perceive it. And, you know, the, the question about resources, um, you know, I, I, I can see that there is some, you know, uh, issues on that level. But, you know, it's not an issue if you can ration it, right? You know, and control the people that might, the other, like, the masses of people um, in, in and so that's why I think this technology is so insidious because it gives so, so much flexibility to the people in power. Um, and, 
whether it will be called capitalism. I, I don't know. I think that's a very good question that you've actually posed before, you know, way before we even started this, about technology replacing human labor. And, you know, um, I don't, like, I, I don't know how, if the, the, the fourth industrial revolution will materialize in full, um, but I think that, you know, I mentioned this in the previous episode, a few steps ahead will mean uh, uh, massive things for people and the ability to fight back. Um, so I, I, as of now, I think it is capitalism, you know, that's doing all this and it is going to try to survive or this system. And it could evolve into just, again, a straight up dictatorship, uh, you know, as people, uh, I think, perceive dictatorships, you know, in, in like... Um, in, in terms of managing a 1984 type of world, uh, dystopian world. And so, um, yeah, that's why, uh, again, that's, I guess I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, I like Jeff's comment, again, because it, it, it's, it broadens my thinking about, about this. Um, and I don't, I don't have an immediate answer as to, well, I don't have an immediate answer as to whether capitalism is now revolutionizing itself to something else that doesn't require profit. But here's my answer that I think aligns with the framework Marx and Engels was putting out, which I'm right now, that's the framework I'm using, is their framework is that the bourgeoisie was a revolutionary class under feudalism, but its period of revolutionizing things is done. It is now a parasitic and um, it's a class which is whose who, whose only role is to enact its own crises because all the things it's now doing are are in the aspect of the extent the extended degrees to which production has overstripped um, consumption and all these different problems that they're the, the falling rate of profit due to the increased machinery use all their revolutionary tricks that led them to defeat the feudalist feudal the feudal order are now coming to combined to collapse their capitalist order. And I, Marx would not say that the capitalists can then play a second revolutionary role, you know, and that's, I'm sticking with that for now, which is to say that the next revolutionary solution to this is not going to be found by the capitalists. It's going to have to be found by another class. And in this case, the working class. If Marx, if Marx's understanding of history is, 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 accurate, then I think I have to put aside the notion that the capitalists will find a revolutionary way out of this. They can extend capitalism potentially some more with new crises that then have to be found. But the idea that they're going to end capitalism and create a new economic order, I think, is off the table if in the, through, the, through the lens of Marx as it's put forward here in uh, Communist Manifesto. And I do believe in, in capital. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I also I do have a question though, um, because you you mentioned before I don't know where you're standing with this, um, but that there is you had concerns that Marxism could become obsolete, you know the way things are going right in terms of, and I'm going to get to that in terms of the working class. Yeah, in removing us from, for example, from our places of yes. work. Right? Yeah, and so that's a different question. Okay, but the. The thing is, or rather, that is that's something I'm going to talk about today, mm -hmm. um, uh, and that that still stands, and that stands after reading this section section as well. 
So I'm if I'm going to say I'm claim Marxism, I think I have to kind of take capitalists, the bourgeoisie out of the picture as with regards to revolutionizing the system. And secondly, I think I have to remind, I will say, we live on, we have lived, we currently live and have lived all our lives under bourgeois dictatorship. Mm-hmm. We might not have thought of it this way. We may have thought there was some play in that, but the, the mask is slipping more and more off and it has to as crises gets worse and worse. Mm-hmm. But what we are seeing is the real nature of capitalist society today. We're not, it's not, it's not, it's always been this. It's always been dictatorship. It's always been tyranny. It's always been essentially, in my opinion, fascist, you know, if you want to use that kind of term, mm-hmm. but ra- deeply racist, deeply sexist, deeply divisive and, and cruel to the, to the point of willing to kill millions and potentially billions for profits. I don't know what you want to call that, but that's, but that's capitalism from the beginning to the end. Yeah. I mean, so, I completely agree with you. There is, you know, like I don't even engage in conversations where people are trying to explain to me democracy or, you know, of this system, because, you know, I don't know where you read history, if you realize how, you know, incredibly violent and, you know, and destructive this system is. And, um, and I think that by and large, at least the imperial population has been sheltered to a degree of the, the direct uh, consequences, you know, and, and it's done in a, with a myriad of tools and like having lived outside this country, I realized how little sense of the world people have here, right. you know, in, in the US. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of the most pro- 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 propagandized countries in the world. And, yeah. you know, we, we shame North Korea and other countries, but man, this, this country is so efficient. And, and again, COVID has, is the biggest proof to me Yep. You know, uh, we we've went through 9/11. You know, obviously, but COVID is just—it's uh, scary the degree of uh, brainwashing that you know it's done to us every day since from the moment we're little in school and we're you know uh, regurgitating bourgeois history, bourgeois understanding of the world, defending bourgeois systems that don't really work for us. And as Jeff would say, bourgeois science. And I agree with Jeff. <laughs> um, so, um, oh, go ahead. I just want to thank Jeff, too, for listening to the episodes and summarizing a lot of stuff and having opinions. You know, that's what this is about. Yep. You know, we want to create a conversation. We're not trying to tell people, like, this is the absolute thing. It's, it's about creating conversation yep. and, you know, and maybe giving other perspectives so people can think about things differently. And yep. I want to have Jeff on the show. So. All right, we should we should come up with that with a framework around that. I'd be good. I agree. Um, yeah, I like that. So let's. Oh, the last one I wanted to read was somebody who I don't really know. We know Jeff and we know Jessica, um, but he's a bit, been a listener. Um, and I thought this comment he made on our YouTube channel at, at, after we did the episode, I really liked and wanted to share it. Um, it's coming. It came from a person called the Coming Revolution. He writes, I think commenting and interpreting Marx's and other works in light of what's going on today is a task the traditional left has neglected, which simply sees the nightmare as capital not being able to deal with a genuine health crisis and thus as a sign of its collapse, not as a fake crisis to attempt and and salvage it, to attempt to salvage it. Very few are doing this work. VG, Agambren, 
Ernest Wolf, and maybe Christian Parenti. What is, ref what is refreshing is the interpretations made away from the dogmatism of academia, also taking into account the digital revolution and how that plays in the reading of events from a communist perspective is something few are doing. So I appreciate him writing that. And that really is what we're trying to do and take this thing out of academia and put it really in the real world. Um, and so I appreciate him recognizing that. That's what we're trying to do. So I think um, it made me feel good about our last episode, even if it we, we didn't necessarily get the most views out of that one. It's not poorly viewed, but I, I, I liked it. And I, like Jessica said, I want to do something like this again. I mean, the algorithms are doing their job too. I mean, <laughs> that's how it works. You know, like I, I see it in my Instagram whenever uh, I pose. Uh, in my, my, my partner has shown me that actually, that even when she's fundraising, she will put a picture of herself and that gets her a lot of views uh, because, you know, she has a certain look. And yeah. uh, versus if you put anything political, it's suppressed. And on that note, I think New York just passed legislation uh, regarding uh, reporting hate on social media, uh, you know, and obviously that's very arbitrary and, you know, signs of things to come for, for us, you know, more of the same that we've been talking about. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, I'm not surprised that the Communist Manifesto does not get a lot of views on, you know, and listen in, uh, but, you know, we'll do a part and. Yeah, I think there are people who appreciate it and we'll just keep on doing our thing which means we're getting back to part two of Communist Manifesto. Um, so let's share my screen. All right, so this is just to say we're on the part part one here, bourgeois and proletarians. Let me move us out of here, okay. Um, and here's where we were last, all right. Um, I'll just start from where we left off, um, which set, and it reads, the weapons which the bourgeoisie felled feudalism to the ground are now turned against the bourgeoisie itself. But not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapon that forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has called into existence the men who are to wield those weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. In proportion as the bourgeoisie, i.e. capital, is developed, in the same proportion is the proletariat, the modern working class developed. The class of laborers who live only so long as they find work and who find work only so long as their labor increases capital. These laborers who must sell themselves piecemeal are a commodity like every other article of commerce and are consequently exposed to all the vicissitudes of competition to all the fluctuations of the market. This is very important uh, in, you know, so the weapons which the bourgeois uh, failed feudalism to the ground are now turned against the bourgeois itself. I wonder if he's talking about, you know, like the, like the industrial, uh, industrial production um, in that sentence, because I know he brings up um, you know, the, the proletarian. proletarian. Well, <clears throat> I, I do think he's speaking of the fact, like this is what he said in this early paragraph, of the fact that all the things that had led them to be able to displace the, fe the feudal order mm -hmm. are, have now led to what he describes as an epidemic of overproduction. Mm -hmm. All this machinery that they've put into place to create efficiency and production that that cheapens labor actually, yeah. um, but but increases the efficiency of its work, um, are creating a new problem for the bourgeoisie that is going to lead to the collapse of their of their system. The crisis of overproduction and the one he doesn't mention here, the the crisis of the fall in the rate of profit. So he's essentially saying, 
bourgeois success in productivity and the, the way that it achieves that productivity and the fact that it only does it through the narrow lens of everything must, you know, become profitable. No production occurs unless it's profitable. He's saying this process is assuring their own destruction by the very tools they put into, yeah. into, into, into play. And he, but he's now adding to that last tool, the working class itself. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, the working class, right? That revolutionary class that is the threat to this system. Uh, it's the, the class capable of um, creating revolution. I do, um, I do wanna kind of at least share my understanding of how it is that we become, you know, wage slaves, which is basically the, that last paragraph. Yeah. Um, because I think that in, in order to understand this, we, it's important to understand little bit of history, right? And how, like, for example, in Europe, enclosure laws, and they started taking property away, created the, the notion of private property to disengage people from, you know, their ability to sustain themselves, right, essentially. And this process happened in Europe, has happened everywhere in the world. Uh, this is one of the reasons um, I've always had a, uh, a disdain for capitalism to some degree, because I know my history in Guatemala, for example. Uh, this is not some theoretical thing. Uh, two, over 200,000 people, mostly in, indigenous people in, in the highlands were killed in order to impose this system of private property. This happens in the 80s, you know, under the, the underwritten and supported, funded by the U.S. in the name of fighting communism, all right? They, they, they came to these communities um, in murder. This happened all over Central America, Latin America, it's happened in Africa and Asia. You know, and people have fought back in order to fight uh, for their right to exist, right, in nature without boundaries, without private property, you know, which is necessary to create profit. And in order, in that process, then you create wage slaves, essentially what Marx will call them. And I think this process has happened everywhere, you know, and it happened to Europeans, it happened to Africans, to Asians, everywhere. And so it's not just a white thing, you know, even uh, the people of Europe um, were removed from their ancestral practices of, you know, that, that are more communal, you know, the common lands were taken away. And so that is, I think for me, supremely important to understand that, that process of history and how capitalism has been imposed on peoples of the world in order to understand how we, me, I consider myself a, a a landless peasant in San Francisco, because I can't afford a land. You know, I have to rent. I have to pay rent to 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 you know. And in this system, you know, the structure of this system is created to protect that that dynamic. You know, the the not just the the creation, but the uh, maintaining the, the the system of private property. And that's why that is a fundamental thing to to do away with if we're able, you know, to fight against this system. And so I, I just wanted to, you know, share that because I think it's very important that we understand that. Yeah, and I, I want to add to that process, that notion of enclosures, which basically saying the, the bourgeoisie enclosed lands that were commonly owned by peasants and said, no, you can't work this land anymore. You're going to be forced into the cities. And there you'll find work there. You know, um, that process that developed capitalism in the West was also one that I would say took place within what they call the Soviet Union, the so-called example of socialism, that 
when Stalin, when the revolution that happened in the Soviet Union, while it was led by the working class, the Soviet Union itself, or the Russia at that time, was largely a peasant peasant economy um, with you know, hundreds, maybe 150 million, I think that number of peasants and 3 million workers, right, with throughout the country. I don't know if I got the, the numbers of peasants right, but it's a big difference between those things. And after the war communism and after fighting off the white armies, and they had to reindustrialize. So how did this socialist system reindustrialize? It essentially created enclosures that pushed peasants off their land. This led to the deaths of many people who lived that in that land. This is where they, a lot of times the capitalists will say, look at fucking Stalin killed all those peasants. True. But this is how capitalism itself has done it. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending Stalin. I'm just saying what it proves to me is that the, the thing that the capitalism that developed in the West is ultimately was mirrored by what, has, what I think is accurately described as state capitalist development that people call socialist and even communists will call it socialist or communist, but it's not. It's, it's the accumulation of capital controlled by the state, a, a, a kind of system that the Chinese have actually used to advance their situation right now. And the U.S. is trying to now kind of um, catch up. And th this is the situation of capitalism under war, which is when, when capitalists go to war, they become all state capitalists. Like the state starts to say, you're not going to make cars anymore. Now you're going to make it becomes command economies um, run by one party. If you want to call the Republicans and Democrats a different party, that's, that's up to you. It'll be one party rule here, and it's one party rule in China. It's just that right now the U.S. is attempting to catch up by essentially becoming a command economy in the same way that China is a command economy. That's what's happening, I think, in some of the changes that are being made and the what we call public-private partnerships that are taking place. And I think to a degree, too, I actually had this conversation with Jake and we had this agreement. So I, I think we maybe agreed a little bit on how, um, you know, like anybody who argues free market doesn't have a sense of what this economy is about. You know, you're, we're talking about the Federal Reserve on the news all the time. You know, if that's not a sort of an economy, then, you know, at least they're attempting to, right? Like to regulate or steer the economy, but there are people who are trying to direct, you know, things and, and dictate how things run. You know, even the notion of inflation actually, you know, it's like kind of relatively new. Uh, and, 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 and so, yeah, and I, I think it's an important point that you made that we have to recognize, you know, uh, people like Stalin and or like what is actually communism. And, and I think people tend to defend you know, and there are some insults names that they give to people that just defend Stalin. And, and I think that has to be critiqued, has to be analyzed. Same with China. You know, there are people today that defend China as a socialist slash communist, uh, you know, process in the way towards, you know, communism and without understanding the fundamentals, right, of private property, uh, without paying attention to that and in uh, and, and the dictations that have to be made in order to create uh, capital accumulation, essentially, and, and accumulate the productive force of, of the masses of people. Yep. <clears throat> but it's not a democratic process. <laughs> That's what no. I'm trying to say. It's not. No, and I would not describe it as socialist or communist or anything revolutionary. All right. Um, then he goes on. Owing to, the, owing to the extensive use of machinery and to the division of labor, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character and consequently all charm for the workmen. He becomes an appendage of the machine. 
And it is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most easily acquired knack that is required of him. Hence, the cost of production of a workman is restricted almost entirely to the means of subsistence that he requires for maintenance and for the propagation of his race. But the price of a commodity and therefore also of labor is equal to the cost of production. In proportion, therefore, as the repulsiveness of the work increases, the wage decreases. Nay more, in proportion as the use of machinery and division of labor increases, in the same proportion, the burden of toil also increases, whether by, by prolongation of the, work, of the working hours, by the increase of the work exacted in a given time, or by increased speed of machinery, etc. There's a lot there, so I'll stop there. Do you want to comment on this? I mean, I do. Um, I mean, so, I, go ahead. Not just here, like the, uh, I, I think of alienation, you know, um, from, you know, the product we, we create in, you know, like the, we are just a, a part of it, you know, that we don't see the full materialization of, of things that we produce. And um, let me see, um, obviously we, I think of every crisis too, um, you know, when that every, after every economic crisis, uh, we workers are squeezed more and demanded more of them. Uh, and I think it's, it's evidence too, by how much, at least in San Francisco, you know, I can only speak by that, like how much work it takes for an average person to be able to make a living here, you know, and that it's just insane. Uh, most people here have one and a half jobs and, you know, there's all sorts of um, um, pathologies that are created from that, you know. So, yeah, of course, it's the extraction of profit, uh, it's the desperation created by making us just a part of a machine or a, pr a production process. Um, but it has real consequences, right, in our psychology, like our spiritual being, um, our, you know, just our state of anxiety in a way. Uh, I think that's what... Uh, that makes me think of and it's a process that didn't just begun recently right it, it began from the moment that people were removed from a more let's call it natural way of being which is you know more communal even though there were a lot of problems right like it wasn't perfect but you know people had their survival was more directly um attached to their labor you know not to the mediators uh you know people who own your time who own your life who own your capacity of, of making a living. Yeah, and what I would say, the two features that I wanna speak of are machinery and division of labor. And then the connection between the decreased cost, the decreased cost of labor then for the, for the capitalist. And therefore, and therefore for that means that the, if, the, if labor is gonna cost less, then labor is gonna get less. And why this immiseration is a natural consequence of the development of capital. So first, machinery. So this is 1848, and this guy is seeing the development of machinery as fun as fundamental to the to the immiseration, to the crisis that capitalism will eventually find itself in, but to the, the immiseration of work of work and of workers, alienation being a part of it. But like, look, when we talk about chips in your body, when we talk about humans becoming cyborgs. What are we talking about other than increasingly the penetration of capitalist machinery, not just into the workplace, but into our bodies to change how we work? So this is nothing new. 
what we're talking about in the fourth industrial revolution, there's not much new there. Like with regards to most of the things we're talking about, I'll, I'll take away data per se, um, because I'm not sure I, I would, would I include data as a part of a machinery in a sense as you develop AI, yes, but I'll at least acknowledge that maybe Marx isn't thinking about something like that. Um, but all the other aspects of humans being pushed off of the terrain and more and more machines becoming these th monsters that run our lives, Marx already talked about it. And division of labor. What does he mean? I mean, basically saying that the, in order, like it's, like, it's like for the making cars, in order for things to be more efficiently made, each action that makes something then has to be broken up into a little piece. And if, if a machine can do most of that, then all you need, if you remember that quote that Allison made about the 10% that you need the human for AI, right? How AI could, could do 90%, but you need that 10% human. That's the part that human comes in on. That space will increasingly, increasingly shrink though. 10% becomes 9%, becomes 8%, becomes 2%, becomes 1%. And Marx is saying that as that, as that space shrinks, so that the work itself becomes more mundane. But again, what does the capitalist pay for? He doesn't pay for the labor. He pays for what's called your labor power. Your labor power is really all, the, all you need to essentially the amount a capitalist has to pay in order to make sure you live so you can do that one task. Now, if your labor power is something that requires a college education and requires some level of skill, then then the base cost, the very bottom floor cost for the capitalist that they will pay is the amount it takes to keep you alive, but also educate you to a particular level. But as the education level is, is, that is needed of you is, is lowered, so does that labor cost for the capitalist. And so does the amount of labor power they can extract out of you because they don't need it. All they need you to do is come to work, do this one thing and get the fuck out. And they will pay you for doing that one thing. And, it, and the value of it is not connected to the price of the product. The price of that product is going down because the, 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 um, the, the thing is becoming made more cheaply because of the efficiency. The, the value of your labor goes down because the actual work required to produce a worker that can do that one act doesn't really take much cost. It's, it doesn't cost that much. And that's all they need to do is, is that's the bare... And, to the extent that you can raise that is maybe a level of how, how well the workers organize, but all of this is built, is predicate, will enforce the immiseration of workers. There's no way around it, he's saying, and it's only going to get worse. And so what for me is remarkable about this paragraph is how much in it is, describes the actual world what, that people are calling the fourth industrial revolution that, again, I'm not saying Marx would have seen every feature, but most of the major features of the fourth industrial revolution are found in this paragraph, in my opinion. I think that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but um, yeah, it gives me I had to think about it. And it makes sense. Um, I also think of, um, you know, how, you know, again, it, it also demonstrates that this system is not about life, right? It only, it's not about, like you said, uh, paying you enough so you can produce something. Um, not not to improve your quality of life because that's an argument that a lot of people that proclaim liberal democracy you know make um that you know it has improved lives of people you know in the world and i question that highly but it makes me think that again the, the priority is not life because if we prioritize life then farmers would live like kings because that's like the essential thing for life right you know like food and in the very 
but it's not. There was, you know, some of the poorest people in the world, you know, and, you know, because they are replaceable, you know, very easily. Um, and, and the people who will be most replaceable are the people who don't, aren't even needed for work. That vast ex ex reserve army of people who are not required any longer because machines are doing it and there's, they've got enough humans to do it. And those folks will exist literally only at the basis of a UBI. There's no reason to keep, under capitalism, there's no reason to keep those people alive. Like, there's none. They have absolutely no value in the world under capitalism because their labor power is unnecessary for the, for the production of, of, and the only reason to keep them alive is, is literally at the whim of the capitalist. And as a notion of keeping, I think, keeping money moving through a system. Um, one, but that's, that is a very thin read on which the lives of many people hang in the balance. So they have an even deeper level of lack of control and alienation from the, from the world because they're literally held into existence only as a cog in the wheel to keep money flowing through a system. That's, that's it. That's the only reason you're around. And so UBI is no solution to this. Universal basic income, right? Yes. Yeah. So. Uh, and then, um, the other thing that I think about is like that it's, it's, you know, I think it's very clear to people how uh, technology replaces labor, uh, right? In terms of machines, physical machines that we can visualize and, and, and see how they move in the world. But then right now this, we're talking about artificial intelligence, which is going to replace a lot of intellectual labor, right? Yep. And, and, you know, so people think that, you know, People are mistaken if they don't think their their own stuff, like teachers, uh, medical workers, judges, uh, sorry, judges and lawyers, judges, psychologists, uh, writers. Um, what else? What was the other one? Um, sorry, uh, nurses, doctors, uh, lawyers. Uh, any, any, you know, like uh, there are leaps just in the last few years that have been made with artificial intelligence. You know, uh, it's already, artificial intelligence has been around for a while. You know, like it's been, it's in our, in our um, map. Uh, you know, like the, the things that we use to get directions around. It's yeah, in the map technology and stuff. Yeah, but it's it's evolving. It has made big leaps. That you know, now for example, my partner, she's being pushed by the, um, what is it? Um, UCSF. So yeah, she's being pushed to do. Um, remote uh to vi visits to the doctor my mother too you know this is already in play this was brought on and pushed on spurred on by COVID. you know it most uh, and now it's just uh normal i guess even yeah. though it's highly frustrating most people are just accepting yeah. it you know and and so we're where we're on our way it's, it, it, and, I, and i think the implications for that are massive right like and then that's why you know i think that UBI is in the conversation. That's why I think crypto in some form, state-run crypto will be in play. Absolutely. They are trying to solve these contradictions, right? Of how you're replacing people, you know, but you want to create producing, um, you know, profits. And so that's why we are so, you know, concerned, at least, you know, that, that the, what's coming, that's what we're taking a stab as what we think is going to happen, why the fourth industrial revolution is so relevant and that people should know about it. Right. Know. And why when the truckers had their go send me account or go fund me accounts taken down as people who oppose what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine, see their PayPal's and Venmo's taken down 
And again, fucking liberals think that there's something good about that. You all you are setting up is a state that's preparing everyone for being controlled with a digital, with digital economy and digital currency controlled by with through that currency. It's like you don't get access to it if you go outside the bounds. And that's that's what's being laid laid down here. And I think people who oppose the vaccination mandates had a taste, you know, of of life uh, while being outcasted and censored, and and you know, just uh, uh, your life being made a, a a living hell because you don't adhere to the dictations of the state, you know, and, and the people who run this world. Yeah. All right. Modern industry has converted the little workshop of the patriarchal master into the great factory of the industrial capitalist. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers. As privates of the industrial army, they are placed under the command of a perfectly of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. Not only are they are they slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine, by the overlooker, and above all by the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. The more openly this despotism proclaims gain to be its end and aim, the more petty and more hateful the, and the more embittering it is. Um, I mean, I think there is a degree of just, I mean, this. yes, these things, you know, have happened, but there's also a process of indoctrination and acceptance, you know, uh, of things. And, and so I, I don't think a lot of people are, aware of how bitter we are with this system, how, you know, because it dislocates us from uh, our, our not, uh, humanity, really, you know, and it makes us slaves uh, and we are slaves. And that's something that, you know, we have to be acutely aware, you know, that we are wage slaves, the, the great majority of us uh, in this system. Yeah, and, and I do think, I do think that's always been our condition, but I agree with you that that is not how people have understood it. And that's not just because people, because essentially, certainly in the in the West and among a certain population after World War II in the United States, there was a increase in living standard of many workers. Not all workers, black workers, maybe some a lot of black workers were left out. Some women workers were left out. Immigrant workers possibly left out, but a certain section of the of workers found their their standard of living increasing in relationship to their work. Um, and one could say that there had there has been some kind of development. They talked about it in the Philippines, they've talked about it in South America at times, where a certain section of the working class finds itself improved, seemingly thinking it's improving its situation and is not becoming more embittered, even if it is possibly becoming more alienated. Mm -hmm. um, and this gets back to that thing that Marx said about like, well, it becomes more obvious to the workers that they are part of a working class. That part has not been true. No. Like there has been a way that it's been very like, and again, the, the idea that meritocracy and workers in this country would raise by their own, I'm going to get myself educated, get myself in a good job and be able to have my family. And then it'll all be, it'll be all good. You know, I'm not gonna be like capitalist, but I don't need to be, you know, just as long as it's good enough, which I understand, you know, but that notion of advancing by your own actions, not by collective actions, that's that's largely how people see it, you know. And that that's certainly a, I don't I do not see a collective consciousness growing with, among workers that I'm around, um, and it hasn't happened in this country at least. 
and I th and I think that's where like the liberal reading of what's happening with society comes into play because I, at least I know a lot of people who think that they'll be because I understand the impetus of creating your own business, for example. I understand the sentiment that's behind it because you want independence, you want self-determination, you know, and, uh, but, you know, there is just this gospel of, you know, be your own uh, small business owner, you know, support small businesses, you know, and, and I would invite those people to read Marx, you know, and, and, and also pay attention to how, like, some of the, you know, smaller shops have to be more exploitative, you know, uh, because they, in order to survive in this system, you know, and, and, and not only that, but that's not real, that's not freedom, you know, it's another set of shackles, you know, in, in another level of dehumanizing, because in order to, for you to be a good capitalist, a good small business, whatever, you have to, you know, exploit other people, <laughs> you know, you have to position yourself in the game above other people. And, and so that to me is not liberation, you know, and yet we're committed to, again, that entrepreneurial, whatever, because I do think there is a lack of the understanding of capitalism, and, you know, fundamentally, um, and not to shame people, but, you know, I think it's also done by design, obviously, you know, even, you know, a generation ago, uh, you know, in Latin America, people knew Marx <laughs> to a degree, even though the experiments went in all sorts of ways, but people knew Marx, people understood the basics, people that didn't go to college, you know, indigenous people in Guatemala knew that, you know, and because they understood communism, <laughs> you know, what community is about. Um, and, and but, but now again, we're just committed to this project of perpetuating this, uh, the lie that you can find freedom within the system, and, and that you can find collective freedom. Well, I would also lay it at the door because conservatives or, or people who believe in reforms or who don't believe in reforms, they shouldn't have been talking about this. They were not the ones who should have been saying, no, we need to have a revolution. But the left and progressives are the ones who should have been holding up the, the fire of, we cannot accept these crumbs. We cannot accept, these aren't crumbs. These are just the terms of our own enslavement being renegotiated. Um, so people who celebrate the eight-hour workday, people who celebrate the civil rights movement, people who celebrate, oh, we stopped this war, but capitalism kept itself. I'm sorry, there is a way that underneath that has been a progressive notion that, oh, we're advancing, oh, we're making progress. It's might, it might not be, you know, we haven't got quite got to equality or social justice, but there is progress being made. And I would say that there was no progress being made. The only progress that gets made is how our workers transformed in those struggles to be prepared for taking down the system. And apparently they weren't prepared at all because we know what society we're living in. All of those struggles ultimately really were not about preparing workers for revolution. It was about tying workers back to the political system, back in the Democratic Party, back in the Republican Party, back into some political party whose job is to keep that, maintain that system. So I believe there has been there has been a celebration of reformism and, and, reform and reform causes that has led revolutionaries to just give up on even, have given up on the cause. And, and, and we lost sight of what really is going on. We never should have been content with those things. We never should have been like, oh, yeah, well, that's great. Frankly, that's just patting people on the head like a, like a little dog. But the reality is we were fooling ourselves, not them. We were fooling ourselves into thinking that this was a path towards revolution when we can, I personally feel like. We can see now, we, look where we are now. Are we, 
do all, are all those struggles, have they led to something that accumulated? So we now have working class on the precipice of recognizing it as a class in and of itself, ready to take power. Absolutely not. Certainly not in this country. You could make a case that maybe that was happening with the yellow vest and the development there, but that shit got thrown right under the bus under COVID. You know, so I, I'm, I'm really done with this, you know, celebrating reform wins. I don't give a shit anymore. And, and then we're at a, at a point where when Canadian truck workers oppose, you know, and organize to fight, you know, these uh, uh, patients, you know, uh, that have implications in so many levels, uh, people visually attack them, you know, as, you know, and, and as anti-worker, <laughs> as anti-people, as anti-life, when in reality, they're, they're doing the work that we should all be doing. Yeah. Um, And I do, I don't know if it's okay to read a quote from Rosa Luxemburg that I think kind of, you know, that at least in my mind too. And, you know, that says, it talks about reformism, you know, uh, versus revolution. Yeah. And uh, so this is from Reformer Revolution from Rosa Luxemburg. And it says, people who pronounce themselves in favor of the method of legislative reform in place of and in contradistinction to the conquest of political power and social revolution do not really choose a more tranquil, calmer, slower road to the same goal, but a different goal. Instead of taking the stand for the establishment of a new society, they take a stand for the surface modifications of the old society. Our program becomes not the realization of socialism, but the reform of capitalism, not the suppression of the system of wage labor, but the diminution of exploitation That is the suppression of the abuses of capitalism instead of the suppression of capitalism itself. And I think that says it, that says it all for me, you know, the distinction between reform and revolution, I mean, a revolutionary and a reformist. And, and I think by large, if there is a left in this country, because I still question that, um, there is like a, a substantial left because so many people that call themselves leftists, but they're doing the bidding of, You know, in, in another epoch, it would have been a right wing thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so if there is a left, we're committed to reform, you know, and, 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 and you know, we're committed to voting to the census, to the crumbs and, and wasting so much energy in that stuff um, and, and not gaining even uh, the awareness that it's not working. It's just we keep doing it. Yeah. Yep. And I like the fact that we have a reading group within a reading group. We're quoting within, like we're quoting Marx and now we're having a new, bringing a new reading into it. That's like so meta. All right, modern industry, okay. The less skill and exertion of strength implied in manual labor, in other words, the more modern industry becomes developed and the more, the more is the labor of men superseded by that of women. Differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class. All are instruments of labor, more or less expensive to use uh, according to their age and sex. Um, I kind of want to stop there just because I think there's some, like, what do you think of that, that part? It, it brings everyone into the productive uh, process of capitalism, um, you know, and I think it, uh, For example, it evokes the industrial revolution in Europe, you know, and how like they needed slavery, like entire families were working, you know, even kids, you know, were the dexterous little fingers. Um, 
and then you know you know th- th- that is the f- the true face of capitalism you know like uh in you know it's about profit it's not about human life and in that is willing to exploit and destroy everything and everyone you know because again it's guiding force is not morality is not you know even um ethics it's profit you know and if you can get away with something you will do it (laughs) you know so like even those eight eight hour work hours you know even that reformism you know that 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 that, uh, workers have engaged in for hundreds of years now or like over a hundred and something years um that was gain you know that was fought for that was fought for with blood you know you know even these crumbs that we have today as workers in you know Yes, of course, the capitalists have gained knowledge that, you know, they can't just press down the boot because, you know, um, and they have to concede some things, but also people have fought back, you know, because, again, if they can get away with anything, they will. They do it all the time in other countries, you know, and they do it here in a different way, but they do it. They do it. There are sections in this country that are completely like, you know, Flint, Michigan. I mean, like, you know, like the what is it? Um, uh, the Appalachians, right? Like the, the mountains that they destroy. The you know, there is entire places of you know pollution. This you know, um, compute human anguish. There are parts of this country, the richest country in the world, that are worse than parts of uh, you know the third world. You know, and, and so they will get away with things. You know, if they can, and. The, there is also the coercive element, right? And, and it's not just the military or the police. It's the fact that we've been removed from our ability to make a living, you know, to to sustain our own life. You know, we've been, been enslaved by the system. And, and, and it's not just the working adults, it's entire families. Yeah. I think what I found useful in it, because I think can, people can read it and be like, oh, like, I almost think there's like some sort of sexist argument being made, like, men could be placed by replaced by women but the really what i think is being made by marx is if you think the strength of your own arm if you think the skill of your own hand is going to keep you keep you keep your job no it won't that can be replaced all of you are replaceable if if you think your own physical strength is what's going to preserve your work no they're going to find a way of replacing that with a machine and they can get a woman to do that he's not saying that that's a person who's less than a man it's just saying capitalists are not sexist they're not ageist they don't discriminate against children. They want, they do one thing. They preserve profit and whoever they need to do to get that, they'll get it. And if, if you fall for the idea of sexism and inter, uh, nationalism and things like that, that's on you, you know, but that's capitalists don't, don't, don't trip on that. They'll get anybody from Mexico to replace you if they need to, but they'll use nationalism to say, oh, they're getting you, you know, or that, that, that person in Mexico is your enemy. Um, so I find that, that's what's important about that is that notion. And I don't think Mark necessarily would predict this, but that's true from, like you said before, for mental labor. If you think, oh, they can't replace me. I'm a teacher. Oh, they can't really replace me. I teach people how to dance, but like we've already seen it. I've seen how teachers are in place. And we saw that video of dance robots, dance teaching robots being made. So it's just a matter of time. So it's all of us are replaceable under capitalism. What's not replaceable is the need to make profit. And the weird thing is, is they need human labor to do it. But nevertheless, they have to continue to, to refine machines so that the section of human labor that is responsible for it is going to be smaller and smaller. 
but that's that's their problem. That's because they're competing for profits. No sooner is the ex- exploitation of the labor by the manufacturer so far at an end that he receives his wages in cash than he is set upon by the other portions of the bourgeoisie, the landlord, the shopkeeper, the pawnbroker, et cetera. The lower strata of the middle class, the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, and retired tradesmen, generally the hand craftsmen and peasants, all these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on and is, swamp- and is swamped in the competition with the large capitalists, partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by the new methods of production. Thus, the proletariat is recruited from all classes of the population. Should I stop there or go on? Yeah, I mean, there. I think there's two different things there. I mean, I think that first line you read, no sooner is the exploitation of labor by the manufacturer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that conveys what I was trying to say, the, the entire enslavement of a, of a system. It makes me think of, again, Guatemala and how like a lot of native people were, um, we go to plantations, you know, it reminds me of plantation work uh, and they were technically free, but they had to buy everything from the, from the, the corporation. You know, they had to go to the doctor with the corporation. They had to even pay a fee to bury their dead, you know, within the property of their cop- the corporation. Uh-huh. And so again, you know, like when I, when I look at the history or the condition of other people, I think of my condition. You know, because, you know, uh, forget the savior thing. You know, we're, we're basically in the same boat to different degrees of piles of shit and like different proximities to the epicenter of power. But we're in the same condition in the same shit hole. Yep. You know? And um, yeah, that, that's that first sentence. And then uh, the second one, sorry, I need to. Yeah, hold on. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, the, again, I, I think of every crisis, you know, the lower strata of the middle class, crazy people. And I think of every every uh, crisis and how you know, especially now it's more obvious. Uh, it's in San Francisco, for example, that um, what's happened is that there's been a monopoly of, um, like in the restaurant industry. That's what I know. What I do. Uh, if you really look at what's going on, fewer people are owning more of the restaurants and bars. That's it. You know, it's concentration, less people, uh, you know, th- that whole dream of owning your own, like, you know, th- the path for me, like I've been in the industry, in the restaurant industry for 16 years, right? And, and, and I'm a manager, I've been a manager for the last five years. You know, my next step would be to own my own space. I can't compete with the, you know, with, by, to enter the market in San Francisco prior to COVID, you needed to spend, uh, $300,000 to buy a liquor license if you pretend to make profit because that's where the money is at. And then you have to pay for, you know, rental, which is really high in San Francisco. Then you have blah, blah, blah. When you add up all the things that you need to get into the market, I need a two, $3 million to open a smaller business. You know, it, it just shows you, right? And, and then how it prohibits competition. And that is the nature of this system. You know, in, in the process of monopoly, people monopolizing the good capitalists monopolizing, they exclude people who have to become workers. You know, they are, and so that is the collection of, you know, or they, they join the ranks of the proletariat with every crisis, you know, and, you know, anyone who doesn't realize that, I don't know where they live now because that's the process that's been happening. Look at Amazon, that's what they do. 
they choke little smaller companies, they hold them at ransom until they give up and they sell. You know, we we are living in a world that is very much that that plantation in Guatemala. Increasingly, and it's increasingly more obvious, you know, and, and it's not because of lack of ethics or morals, it's the process of capitalism. <laughs> And then once you understand that, you understand why we are saying that this ends in war. Yeah, and I can't say any much better than that. All I'll say is this guy wrote this in 1848. And he's describing a process that we have seen over and over and over again. Rosa Luxemburg speaks of it in Reform and Revolution. She's writing that in 19 something, turn of the century, 40, 40 years later. But I, I mean, what can you say about it speaks, I would just say, it speaks to the legitimacy of his analysis, of their analysis, that they're able to predict this process by which ever, ever increasing sections of crisis are going to shove more and more sections of the middle class, the petty bourgeoisie into the proletariat. Um, and so that to me is like pretty amazing. I mean, I, I'm just struck by the accuracy. All right. The proletariat goes through various stages of development with with its birth begins its struggle for the with the bourgeoisie. At first, the contest is carried on by individual laborers, then by the work people of a factory and then by the operative of one trade in one locality against the individual bourgeoisie, against the individual bourgeois who directly exploits them. They direct their attack not against the bourgeois conditions of production, but against the instruments of production themselves. They destroy imported wares that compete with their labor. They smash to pieces machinery. They set factories ablaze. They seek to restore by force the vanished state of the workmen of the Middle Ages. Um, I think he's kind of talking about like a, a particular period of class struggle that looked more like the Luddites, where they were like, we're taking all this shit apart and trying to bring ourselves back to the good old days kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I think it's, I don't think that applies to today. I think that's, uh, I mean, something that we, have to do <laughs> i do I, i'm i'm speaking to it because i do feel like there's an element that this is going to have to be done yeah um, but you know he's speaking of that as a particular stage and yeah. then he speaks of a later stage at this stage the laborers still form an incoherent mass scattered over the whole country and broken up by their mutual competition if anywhere they unite to form more compact bodies this is not yet the consequence of their own active union but of the union of the bourgeoisie which class, in order to attain its own political ends, is compelled to set the whole proletariat in motion and is moreover yet, for a time, able to do so. At this stage, therefore, the proletarians do not fight their enemies, but the enemies of their enemies, the remnants of the absolute monarchy, the landowners, the non-industrial bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie. Thus, the whole historical movement is concentrated in the hands of the bourgeoisie. Every victory so obtained is the victory for the bourgeoisie. Anything to say about that? It makes me think again. I try to apply it to my own lived experience, right? It makes me think of celebrating the, you know, like uh, the victories of independence, right, of, of Latin America. You know, to yeah, some things changed, but the ruling class. What changed was who was holding power in the same same system, um, and so you know. It makes me think of Ukraine, you know, it makes me think anywhere we engage in war, um, you know, that, uh, that we have to, again, be acutely aware that these are not victories for us. You know, we don't benefit from that. Um, 
in even though it's it's a hard argument, right? Because if you're relatively okay, uh, you know, if you're in that section of the working class that it's getting rewarded rewarded relatively more than you know the rest, then you you're not gonna see a problem. You know, you're not gonna mind. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that it's not up to our benefit. It's not our victory. It, you know, it, it is the victory of the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie of you know a given country, um, and and they will set people in emotion in different ways, right? Nationalism is one of those things that I I I personally think in, in this iteration of the the present, it, it varies from country to country too, right? Because in some ways it's necessary to fight imperialism. I, I understand that complexity, but at least I'm speaking of this country. It, 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 it's, it's used to galvanize people and you know get them to get behind the flag, and and that means getting behind the ruling class of the country. Yeah, and I do think it's important to say that I think you're speaking at the right period of time. He's talking about the American, like things like the American Revolution, the French Revolution. I would also include the Civil War in this country, where set against the feudal feudal landowners in the South. But who's who was beneficiary? The primary beneficiary of that battle was going to accrue to the northern bourgeoisie, who was going to extend their bank system, expand, extend their rail system, and and create a system from, you know, one. What is it? What is um slavery? Uh, chattel slavery to wage slavery that was institutionalized across the globe and laid the groundwork really for the U.S. empire to to expand. Because that's what happened right after the Civil War. Uh, once again, Reconstruction went under place and things like that. So, speaking about that, I, I do. It also does make me think about the the battles today, where teachers go on strike, and this is not what he's talking about, though. Where teachers go on strike, and they're and and they challenge their board of board of education, or they challenge an administration. But are, are they? Are, is that challenge had against the the actual capitalists? Are they understanding this as a fight against those capitalists? And I do think this is because he was talking about fighting fighting the enemies of your enemies. In this case, much of our way, much of our battles today are are the foot soldiers of uh, we're fighting the foot soldiers of the capitalists, not the capitalists themselves. And I think that's another issue. Though maybe I should get more into the reading and see if that comes up. But with the development of industry, the proletariat not only increases in number, it becomes concentrated in greater masses. Its strength grows and it feels that strength more. The various interests and conditions of life within the ranks of the proletariat are more and more equalized in proportion as machinery obliterates all distinctions of labor and nearly everywhere reduces wages to the same lower low level. The growing competition among the bourgeoisie and the resulting commercial crises make the wages of the workers ever more fluctuating. The increasing improvement of a machinery ever more rapidly developing makes their livelihood more and more precarious. The collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeoisie take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. Thereupon, the worker begins to form combinations, trade unions, against the bourgeoisie. They club together in order to keep up the rate of wages. They found permanent associations in order to make provisions beforehand for their occasional revolts. Here and there, the contest breaks out in riots. And here's where I agree that um, the the process that he's describing of the the growing immiseration, I agree. And one of the things he's saying here about what makes the working class a revolutionary class is the bourgeoisie was forced to concentrate them into areas, and that's what that was the result of enclosure. 
And so they are a collective class by virtue of their collective work is brought together in a place. And that's what makes it so productive. It is the machinery process in, 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 in concert with their collective productivity and the division of labor within each of those workers who is, you do this, you do that, we're going to coordinate that. And this is what leads me to today's, my concern that I had when I started to think about this fourth industrial revolution is because I, I worry that, that, that I, I agree with Marx that the part of what makes the, makes the working class a revolutionary class is, it, is its inherent collective nature by virtue of enclosures that brought them all together. But I see something that's taking place, which is what I would describe as re reverse enclosure where we are essentially being separated from the workplace again and put essentially back into our homes. And I think it's possible that instead of us experiencing exploitation as part of a collective working class, we are going to increasingly experience exploitation as part of an individualized petty bourgeoisie, um, middle class. And we will be, that's where that whole notion of gig workers, my ability to get badges, my ability to do this, the whole ability of survival, I'm not going to see it as part of building a collection. In fact, I'm going to be tra trapped in a network online that, that, and again, he talks later, I mean, I should, shouldn't, about the development of railways allowing workers to associate more freely. But the, the, the infrastructure that's being built today is not one that's going to allow us to build, to build more, particularly because it's gonna keep us separated and the infrastructure itself is completely controlled by the capitalist. It's not free for us to walk along that. And so this is where I start to wonder if there's a riddle that's been solved. If you will, this is this solution I think that might be happened. Because I still believe in the in that there's a class divided society. But if the capitalist class, and I still believe the capitalist class is is headed towards ruin, and I believe it's towards war, but it is potential, it is possible that they are. At, at this very moment, eliminating the one class that is capable of displacing it and therefore assuring common ruin, not a new class coming to power and things like that. That is how I, how I worry about things today is that they're eliminating the working class. They're keeping exploitation. They're going to make workers more miserable, but they're eliminating us as a collective class and they are eliminating, eliminating our ability to associate using the technology that Marx noted that at the time that would allow them to associate more successfully nationally and then ultimately internationally. I, I wonder if they have solved the riddle of, okay, we've eliminated the one class that could displace us. Now we can just go ahead and destroy the world. Even if they don't think they're going to destroy the world because they think they're going to get to a singularity or they think they're going to get somewhere else. They think they're going to be able to have this war and win and da, 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 da. That's the thing I, when I read this, this is where I go. This would be my British criticism of Marx's notion of the proletariat is it was a collective class, but I think it's being decollectivized through what I would describe as a reverse enclosure process. And I just wanted to add that. Um, do you want to see the screen or do you want to? Uh, no, no, no. Just to follow from that, that, you know, that also, you know, a reminder that these global actors, right, these ruling classes of the world, uh, they do have like a common um, like interest, right? In, in terms of making profit, but they're all acting individually, you know, uh, for their own self-interest. Uh, it's not like, a, that's where I disagree again with people that 
adhere to the new world order thing uh, or framework is that they're acting in self-interest and that aggregates to come and ruin, you know, it, 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 in, because that is the nature of the system, you know? Um, and again, that's why it is concerning. I share that concern with you, you know, because you also in the past have mentioned about, you know, the, the this key element of occupying physical space, right? Staying in, our, in the physical space of like a school, you know, in, in, in running that school the way you're supposed to, to fight back against this isolating uh, tactic, really, um, that disempowers, decollectivizes, uh, you know, the, 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 the revolutionary class, right? The only class that can challenge and, and win against, you know, the rulers of this system. Um, and yeah, so it, it, it's definitely, you know, concerning, I share that with you uh, in combination with many things. And we are far from, you know, fighting back or being even aware of what's happening, I think, uh, as a class. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know about the ability that we become more aware of ourselves as a class as our situation deteriorates in a gig economy where we are, where those who do have work are working on headsets but are separated by time zones you know, it, 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 within an infrastructure that is completely captured by, by our, by the, our capitalist masters. I, that's, that's a, that's a tough one for me to envision, envision becoming more aware of how we collectively get out as we become more atomized. You know, and I think like, I, I feel like this process has been happening. It's just, this is like, um, more concentrate or more, detail and individualized, like you said, because, you know, they took factories all over the world, production, you know, they, they uh, socialized production globally, but it, that also has an isolating effect, I think, uh, in, in it, you know, just like, I think Brian told me this once, I don't know if he still believes that, but that, you know, in a way they realized that the power people had by being concentrated and so they, you know, atomize factories, you know, they, they break, broke it down, separated, but then the truckers came in, you know, and then the truckers have, you know, so that, that also speaks to me too, like, because I, I think Marx said that somewhere that um, to try to solve one crisis, they plant the seeds for the next crisis. Yeah. And that crisis is not just a financial crisis, I think, but it's also a crisis in holding on to power as well. They, that's why I, I think they know they have to impose this techno-fascist order on us, you know, this surveillance state, because, you know, they wanna be able to efficiently squash uh, people from organizing the dissenting voices, um, you know, and, and to keep us isolated. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think that is the way that Marx has, and Engels are framing it, is each, each, each solution they come up with now in this period of when when capitalism is no longer it's not no longer breaking itself free from an old order but it but it's calcifying as the existing order and and he would say doomed to failure ultimately i do think he they describe it as each solution is actually a creates a new problem and in that regard i can say that in the same way that marx i don't think predicted the ability for them to separate workers and I do think that's their answer. 
I suppose I'm open to the idea that that, 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 that solution to their problem is itself going to provide, create a new crisis of the possibility of organization. I'm open to that. I just don't see it right now. I'm with you in that. It's just... <laughs> I'm hoping. Oh, that's that's like a faith statement. I'm more like a religious person. Yeah. That that, yeah. <laughs> now and then workers are victorious, but only for a time. The real fruit of their battle lies not in the immediate result, but in the ever expanding union of the workers. This union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry. This is what I was speaking of before. And that place workers of different localities in contact with one another. It was just, it was just this contact that was needed to centralize the numerous local struggles, all, this, all of the same character into one national struggle between classes. But every class struggle is a political struggle and that union to attain, and that union to attain which burgers of the middle ages which burgers of the Middle Ages with their miserable highways required centuries, the modern proletarian, thanks to railways, achieve in a few years. So he's just saying that there was, there was infrastructure built that allowed the bourgeoisie to become a more collective class, able to take out the feudal order. That's those modern highways that, that took centuries for them to build their order within. He's saying modern technology of communication, of interaction, of of movement would allow proletarian to achieve that sort of union in just a few years. In theory, I agree. And I, I definitely agreed with that much of the time. As I watch what's happening now, I feel like they're taking all that. They're, they're, but the fourth industrial revolution is, is taking all that away in some ways. And I would just add that this paragraph like the sentiment that 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 concept, it's well known by the people who rule this world. And so their task is to make sure you don't, you know, use those tools. Their task is to not allow workers to aggregate. I mean, we've known, I mean, everyone's aware of how they uh, hammered down organized labor, you know, even as reformist as it is, you know, they know. I mean, they they know, and and, and that's why this is so concerning. That what's happened in the last two years again, you know, right. that, and and I would say that they that the capitalists have grown more and more aware of how that is true. Marx predicted that workers would also become more and more aware of their own union being their salvation. That I don't see. Yeah, I mean, but and I think, I think. I think it's it's a product of the lack of awareness of the working class is a product of the awareness of the capitalist ruling class, and and you know because it, again we live in a very efficient uh, system of indoctrination and in, you know especially in this country. Yeah, the or this organization of the proletarians into a class and consequently into a political party is continually being upset again by the competition between the workers themselves but it ever arises again, stronger, firmer, mightier. It compels legislative recognition of particular interests of the workers by taking advantage of the divisions among the bourgeoisie itself. Thus the 10 hour bill in England was carried. Altogether collisions between the classes of the old, altogether collisions between the classes of the old society further in many ways, the course of development of the proletariat. The bourgeoisie finds itself involved in a constant battle. At first with the aristocracy, later on with these with those portions of the bourgeoisie itself, whose interests have become antagonistic to the progress of industry, 
at all times with the bourgeoisie of foreign countries. In all these battles, it sees itself compelled to appeal to the proletariat, to ask for help, and thus to drag it into the political arena. The bourgeoisie itself, therefore, supplies the proletariat with its own elements of political and general education. In other words, it furnishes the proletariat with weapons for fighting the bourgeoisie. You know, you, you've made a distinction that at, at times he's speaking of the time, right? What he's seeing in front of him or them, they're just speaking of that time. So I also, because my reading is that a lot of it is was very optimistic. You know, it was uh, deterministic. It was very, you know, like, oh, this is what's going to happen in without accounting for the ways that capitalism and the people who rule this world adapt, right, to, in order to maintain uh, power. Yeah. So I wonder if both can exist or do you think it's like he was, you know, it, it's a product of just that time, what he was seeing or yeah. was just being optimistic? I think he was seeing that those things come together. He was seeing those unions form. He was thinking that this that this clash is going to only get more and more worse. It's going to even losses will result will result in the understanding of workers who say we lost for that reason. Now we got to come back harder and fight harder next time. And there's truth in that. Like when we talk about the 1930s in this country, they the 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 the, the degree to which workers fought as hard as they did in the 1930s was predicated on the class struggle of the 1920s where they experienced 10 years of defeat. So that process by which workers are educated by their own experience themselves, I think is accurate. So I do think at the time he was thinking, again, I think he's talking, he's not talking about revolution in 2000. He's talking about revolution by the end of his century, for sure. I, I would say, you know, um, that if it was going to happen, it was going to happen then, or there was going to be the common ruin. And he was, again, and he's writing the manifesto they're writing the manifesto to speak to international workers at the time. So they are trying to say, this is what we could possibly do. Um, but he's, but I think they were not aware of how many ideological and organizational tricks the, the ruling class could have up its sleeve to keep us separated. Because again, they thought it was going to become clear to workers who workers were. And I don't think that's true at all. I think that's a, for me, that's a big feature of we have not become more aware of ourselves as a class in this last hundred years. We have become less aware. And how did that process take place? You can look at what happened in the Communist Party. You can look at the Red Scare and the McCarthyism and take, say that played part of a role. I'd say some of that, but in the same way that socialists are confused about the Russian Revolution and that and that state socialism is actually the what we're trying to fight for. There's so much confusion on our side about who our allies are, what our tasks are, what we're fighting for. Uh, it, much more confusion than I think Marx would have imagined could be thrown into by history. And for me, and this is more of a rhetorical thing like um, that I wrestle with, you know, because, you know, everyone, everyone has some sort of philosophy on human nature, you know, and because I, I often hear, you know, these uh, arguments that, you know, maybe it's just people don't want to fight. <laughs> maybe people just want to get by, you know, and and I don't know, like, you know, it's just, again, just more rhetorical thing. I, um, yeah, I, I don't know. He would, I don't think Marx would disagree with that. What he's saying is, and you're going to, we're going to get to the very end, is 
the conditions of capitalism will force that fight or common ruin. I mean, but uh, in I mean, because I've I've been um, I've I've argued before that you know shit has to get bad, you know, to a degree. You know, people have to physically, materially experience certain things in order to you know to do something about it. We push, you know, um, you know, because I do see the struggles that are wielded in other countries, like in Latin America in particular, that are still reformist. You know, they are, but people are willing to you know fight. You know, and uh, I think it might be a collective psychological, you know, historical thing depending on the countries, but I just don't see it here. You know, I think uh, we're very, very well in prison. Um, uh, in, yeah. I would say, so Marx mentioned unions here and the, the organization of workers. Did Marx, like, look at the state of our unions. Would Marx have predicted that these unions, and they were, they were most, unions have been most centralized in the public sector, Right. The private sector has been largely decimated in this country. Yeah. So where they are, where workers are brought together the most, what are workers doing? You got to get vaxxed. You've got to get contact traced. You've got to be brought into these indoctrination centers. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. It's except to say that Marx was not right about this kind of inevitable development. Clearly, there's a place that can happen where the these union institutions can become foot soldiers for the bourgeoisie mm. to impose its own order and will on other sections of workers who are not organized. So, mm. and that, again, it comes back to that notion of, oh, this is simple. It's going to be clear, like who the workers are and who the capitalists are. I'd say it turns out not. And that has been a big problem. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I guess I, I would invite people to to look at uh, some places in Latin America when they try to raise the price of uh, a bus fare for, you know, by a dollar, shit breaks loose. And I'm not saying that, you know, that's the yeah. only way, but that's, I guess, when I'm, it's in yeah. my mind. Further, as we have already seen, entire sections of the ruling class are, by the advance of industry, pre precipitated into the proletariat, or at least threatened in their conditions of existence. These also supply the proletariat with fresh elements of enlightenment and progress. Mm. Finally, in times when the class struggle nears the decisive hour, the progress of dissolution going on within the ruling class, in fact, within the whole range of old society, assumes such a violent, glaring character that a small section of the ruling class cuts itself adrift and joins the revolutionary class, the class that holds the future in its hands. Just as, therefore, at an earlier period, a section of the nobility went over to the bourgeoisie. So now a portion of the bourgeoisie goes over to the proletariat. And in particular, a portion of the bourgeois, bourgeois ideologists who have been, raised themselves to the level of comprehending theoretically the historical movement as a whole. Uh, of all the classes that stand face to face with the bourgeoisie today, the proletariat alone is really a revolutionary class. The other classes decay and finally disappear in the face of modern industry. The proletariat is itself special and a, and a Proletariat is its special and essential product. So I think there's a lot there. Do you want to start? I need a second. To yeah. First off, I do believe that we will see some of these developments that he's talking about, like sections of the bourgeoisie who 
will actually be will be throw so threatened and so thrown out in in their defeat that if the ruling if the working class is organized enough to pose itself as an alternative, they'll join us. I question this notion. They also supply the proletariat with fresh elements of enlightenment and progress. In that statement, I hear in that that same old thing of rural idiocy. Okay, I don't. If they if if they read Marx or if they read something that's actually going to help them towards making a revolution, yes. But there's a way that he still is admiring these people and thinking that they have something to offer us. Those people are the desperate traitors of their own class. I don't think they give us all that much, except to say there maybe there's some particular expertise in the technical area they know about. Maybe there's something they know about how things are organized. But again, my sense, much more than Marx, is some of those things he described of like the early stages of fighting capitalism where they were destroying machinery and taking it down, I personally feel like there's going to, I tend to start to think there's going to be more of that than he understood. Um, and so needing the people who are technically able to keep the means of production, at this point, I don't know. I'm just going to have, I'm just going to say I have deep questions about that. Um, but he is noting the fact that the bourgeoisie is coming into, on its own throat. I agree with very much that. That's, that's why I don't agree with the NWO. The problem I see in some ways, and it's not again one he could predict, is that I, World War I took several years before people who were supportive of World War I became the absolute enemies of World War I and willing to take their own governments down to do it. That process took years, millions of deaths, and, and people had to experience those losses and see time and time again how their own bourgeoisie was lying to them and using them as cannon fodder. That process took several years. It took several years in World War I, and that process never realized itself in World War II, even though you have 50 million deaths versus 15 million deaths in World War I. It's just as true in World War II that we were cannon fodder for the capitalist class. But today we look at that as like the great generation, people who fought against fascism, fought to preserve democracy. So clearly you can kill 50 million and people can look at it not like a 50 million sacrifice to fight fascism, not capitalism, because that's true. And capitalism can actually be restored through this process, not just in the minds of the bourgeoisie, but in the minds of workers. So that crisis in World War II didn't lead to a revolution, didn't even have that outcome where people were willing to take down their governments and say, fuck you for putting us in this goddamn war that you want to sell, you want us to celebrate. I don't celebrate it. This is criminal. Now I think about World War III. I don't think we have years. I don't think World War III gets gets weird in the matter of years. I think World War III gets weird in the matter of minutes. And I don't do about that. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Nuclear war? Yeah. Like the way, the way it was described. Oh, you got your things in Finland. Oh, we've got to automate our, our, Russia has to now automate their thing so that they take it out of human decisions. So the whole thing has to be automated in order to make sure you can defend yourself. So this whole process to me can happen very rapidly. Whole cities are bombed, millions, billions dead, the world irradiated. It's pretty much not, you can live, but it's, you know, the, the possibility of progressing as a, as a species through that period to me does not, that looks like common ruin. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't look at that as like, oh, we're going to have a revolution after, after the World War III when everything's been irradiated. So that's the problem. <laughs> Unfortunately, I feel like we're not going to get enough time. And as the crisis develops, we're not, it's not going to come, it's going to come to a head too quickly mm-hmm. for us to actually learn that we have to take these people out. Wait. 
this might be a longer conversation, but why did you think that didn't take place in the previous, you know, tensions of nuclear war, like with the, you know, Soviet Union? Well, first, I, I feel like World War II didn't, far from being a crisis that, that, that exposed capitalism as having to be ended, it rebranded capitalism as something that can progress the species by fighting fascism. We, we defeated the Nazis, even though the Nazis were put back in Operation Paperclip, back into the system, as we can see today. There was no defeat of fascism. Dictatorship, there was dictatorship before World War II, and the dictatorship extended itself and expanded itself into more broadly. But that is not how it's conceived of. It is conceived of as a democratic era by most people, even by most revolutionaries. We'll even talk about it in that way. I mean, I guess some people don't know the history of Latin America, for example, in the, you know, in the 80s. And like a lot of those people that were, you know, fled Germany had instrumental, you know, roles in, in the fascism that happened in Latin America in the process of imposing private property extraction, new markets, uh, all this stuff. And, and so, you know, and, and that does tend to be people like on the quote unquote right wing that have a, don't have a, that reading of history. Um, you know, um, and that buy into the American democracy and civilized and all this bullshit. Um, you know, because again, that is an instrument. You know, of of uh, that is a fundamental. I think you call it. Uh, this system is underwritten by violence, right? Um, and it's been in full display. And you know. Like, that's just a personal anecdote that that's one of the reasons that acute awareness is that makes has always I've never committed to this capitalist system never mm -hmm. in my life because I'm acutely aware of my history where my people come from what is done to my family mm. you know and, and, and like so it's real it's not theoretical that's why I invite people again to read this stuff and discuss this stuff you know and become acutely aware of certain things yeah so here we are, let's see. The lower middle class, the small manufacturer, the shopkeeper, the artisan, the peasant, all these fight against the bourgeoisie to save from extinction their existence as fractions of the middle class. They are therefore not revolutionary, but conservative. Nay more, they are reactionary, for they try to roll back the, the wheel of history. If by chance they are revolutionary, they are only so in view of their impending transfer into the proletariat. They thus defend not their present, but their future interests. They desert their own standpoint to place themselves at that of the proletariat. Um, it, isn't this the people that he was saying that would provide enlightenment? No, he, he was speaking of sections of the bourgeoisie. He now he's speaking of people in the lower middle, the lower middle class, like, okay. um, and maybe he's speaking about people in the upper middle class. But here he's speaking about a, a, a section below the bourgeoisie, the ones who are getting flattened out of the economic crisis. The ones he was saying that modern industry will just make, will push and push more and more towards the proletarian. He's speaking of these people as having more individualized interests and therefore not yeah. thinking of their future as collective and therefore tending potentially towards more conser conservative, even reactionary views, um, unless they get their minds right and understand that their future is with the proletariat. That's kind of how he's putting it. And then, but it does acknowledge, I think, gradations in the, you know, in society, you know, yes. that there are different groups, yeah. Yep. And this is another quote that I think is interesting to me. 
the dangerous class, he puts in quotes, lumpen proletariat, the social scum that passively rotten mass thrown off by the lowest layers of the old society may here and there be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. I have to say, I think this is really what, like, I feel like more and more people are going to be thrown into that position. What he's calling lumpen proletariat. It's translated as social scum. Um, and I understand how he sees those folks as being able to be mar marshaled, their desperation being able to marshaled by the capitalists to be used against a rising working class. But I see this group size growing out of this fourth industrial revolution. And this is what U UBI is going to produce. It's going to, it's going to produce a mass layer of lumpen proletariat. And if that's the case, Marx, then then you're basically saying we're basically saying a larger group of people who can be used by the bourgeoisie, even when it hurts them, but out of their own desperation, used to come back and attack any rising collective struggle that might be displacing them in five years from now or ten years from now that might emerge. I don't know, man. So this is not the like industrial working class, is it? Or I'm just wondering if. There is a distinction, um, like, is this the people that, like, is this rural workers? Is this just these are people? I These are unemployed. These are people with no work. Okay. They're not working. Like, and they're, they're not, there's no hope of working. They're the left out. They're the reserve army. He expected the working class to grow. And it was growing. And now I wonder, now I wonder if, it's going to get smaller if for the fourth industrial revolution process proceeds. And, and UBI generalized UBI where somebody lives only on the basis of the state money that they get. Yeah. Like you are literally looking right at this group right here, the dangerous class that to me, far more part of a bribe tool of reaction, reactionary entry. That's what they're useful. Be I mean, for sure, if there is a struggle, if there is a class struggle that's taking place, UBI folks and UBI beneficiaries, if you will, people who are getting UBI are going to be part, are going to be used as a tool to fight that. And so they are dangerous to the prospects of a revolution? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm saying they may be swept into the movement of proletarian revolution. Yeah. But it's conditions of life. Of these folks, however, prepare it far more for part of a bribe tool of reactionary entry. But I, I, I wonder if. So I understand that you know the, the UBI stuff absolutely, but I think in some ways, by being part of this system, we are there. Like we are bribed. We are you know like especially sections of the of the work, the class in, in you know the U.S. Um, and that's that they are the dangerous class to a revolution, you know, um, like the people that just see again participating in this gig economy as being their into so, in some way, I see that I, 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 I see some sort of similarity between UBI and that the, the gig economy. 
I don't know. Like, I, I ha it's not materialized. I need to think about it, but I, I don't know. Well, you certainly, what they have in common is they are not, they're atomized workers and they are not, they do not experience their own, their own experience of what is powers them is not their common and collective work. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, they, they share that in common. I do think there's a difference between a dumbass teacher who has got their heads fucked up mm -hmm. and a person who's literally homeless. That's what he's describing. He's describing that layer that he saw existing and that, that exists. And that he will go, get thrown into prison and stuff like that. So now we're talking about people, but they're, they're, they're displaced from work. They're not working. And he's not making that as a criticism, but he is saying that that group of people who are unemployed is, is a possible tool. And he's saying more likely to be used as a tool against revolutionary struggle than one that's going to fill its ranks. Yeah. If he's right, then, then that's a problem. <laughs> that's going to be our problem because I have a feeling that group's going to grow. I do also wonder like if in some ways you're already, you know, I mean, it's going to, I know this process is going to intensify. Um, but for example, I think of people that live on the border, right? You have, and people who wonder why the hell are brown people working for the border agents, you know? But like, that's the only source of work, you know? That, yep. and, 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 you know, that why, like, same with um, people who, who work for jails, you know, or Amazon in certain industries, that is the only source of work. And you still have to make a living because you leave us a wage slave in this system. Right. You know? and, and in this case, though, we're talking about people whose only subsistence is going to be government, uh, uh, government money, government digital money. Yeah. That, yeah, can, that. that whose value can raise, whose value can be lowered and raised depending on your behavior. And if you behave in a way where you are acting to preserve the order, your UBI value goes up. Yeah. No, I, I, I understand that. And yeah, it's, it's scary. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's insane, but yeah. let's see, <laughs> it's just questions that come up for me. Yeah. In the condition of the proletariat, those of old society at large are already virtually swamped. The proletarian is without property. His relation to his wife and children has no longer anything in common with the bourgeois family relations, modern industry, labor, modern subjugation to capital, the same in England as in France, in America as in Germany, has stripped of every trace of national, has stripped, stripped him of every trace of national character. Law, morality, religion are to him so many bourgeois prejudices behind which lurk and ambush just as many bourgeois interests. Again, I just see him thinking that like, it's gonna become more clear to the proletarian, if you will, the line of march who their physical enemy is, who their ideological enemy is, and who, what ideas will, will preserve that proletariat. And he's saying that as they strip away all these, these myths of the past, he's almost assuming that, that the myths of the proletarian will emerge uh, of their own. And not myths that are wrong, myths that are right. Like we can collectively control the world. We can collectively make a revolution happen. If that's the kind of, but that is not the understanding that is growing among workers as other myths, like, I don't see it. And so I, again, I don't, I, I have questions about this paragraph. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, same way. Again, that's like, I know that that needs to happen. That's something that happens to me as an individual that I uh, destroy like the myths that were indoctrinated in me like, in terms of understanding my condition, understanding bourgeois history, you know, understanding, for example, uh, we, you mentioned the civil war here and how is, or the world wars and how they're presented in moral, you know, aggrandizing terms for democracy and liberty. But once you get that facade and you, and that's what we are, I think, materialists, we see it, the, you know, the economic conditions and, you know, and, and how everything interacts to, to, to create that, that, you see past that facade of morality, you know, at least that's been my experience in, you know, um, or, yeah, morality and aggrandizing Mr. George, George Washington, you know, Mr. Abraham Lincoln. And once you, are, you know, or, or slavery, right, or, 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 or racism, that, that do you understand this as tools of a system, not as, you know, moralizing um, or ethical views of the world? Because that's not how these people think. That's not what drives them, you know, the, 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 the rulers of this world. And so I do, I do think that that needs to happen. I don't think it has happened. And, and if anything, we're way away from that. Um, and at least that's kind of my mini mission, you know, to kind of share my perspective in that, you know, like that's why I, I reject the flags of Latin America. I do, you know, especially in this period, I understand, you know, history, I don't completely dismiss it, but, you know, like, or, or people that come to this country and are still attached to the country back home, but are not fighting, you know, and they're concerned for the conditions of people down there, but they're not fighting for their own stuff here, you know, you know, with their own reality and, and buying into the propaganda, buying into the, the normalizing forces of this system here, you know, like to me, like, yeah, you know, like I care about, I was born in, in that land that they call Guatemala, that they put those borders on, you know, and I do, and I, I, I respect my culture, but I'm here, I live here, you know, I'm, I'm in a shithole here with, you know, other people and my fight is here, you know, and I, I, I can only show up to, for other people if I fight here, you know, at the epicenter of all this shit, you know, mm -hmm. in, in my current reality. All the preceding classes that got the upper hand sought to fortify their already acquired status by subjecting society at large to the conditions, to their conditions of appropriation. The proletarians cannot become masters of the productive forces of society except by abolishing their own previous mode of appropriation, and thereby also every other previous mode of appropriation. They have nothing of their own to secure and to fortify. Their mission is to destroy all previous securities for and insurances of individual property. I'm not sure I understand about that conditions of appropriation. I don't think I fully understand it enough to make to make sure what he's saying. But it's interesting to read that last line. And in that, I can hear, yeah, we're going to have to dismantle forms of individual property. And not just property as relations, but I do believe I have questions about the means of production that are no longer saying you can't keep the means of production as individual property, they are all ours. But I also think not just destroying that, those relations of the production, but the, the means of production themselves, I, I wonder about. 
you know, it is obviously makes me think of private property and, and um, it's, it's about that. Uh, and, but I think there is a danger, right, of that's happened in previous experiments. And I think it's very much alive in people who think of themselves, themselves as leftist, Marxist. Yeah. Uh, th this idea that to eradicate pri private property, it has, pr property has to be wielded by the state. Um, and, and I think that's a very dangerous thing um, that we need to be aware of. <laughs> you know, that I'm not, I don't want, I don't call that socialism or communism. You yeah. know, for me, it's common property. It's, it's, it's not that, you know, uh, it's a collective thing. It's not a, you know, it's not to be decided and wielded by, you know, again, individuals that dictate how mm -hmm. things are run. Um, because that, that to me is not a revolution. <laughs> It's not. Yeah. All previous historical movements were movements of minorities or in the interest of minorities. The proletarian movement is the self-conscious independent movement of the immense majority in the interest of the immense majority. Proletariat, the lower stratum of our present society, cannot stir, cannot raise itself up without the whole super incumbent strata of official society being sprung into the air. Uh, though, not, though not in substance, yet in form, the struggle of the proletariat with the bourgeoisie is at first a national struggle. The proletariat of each country must, of course, first of all, settle matters with its own bourgeoisie. In depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we traced the more and more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society, up to the point where the war breaks out into open revolution and where the violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie lays the foundation for the sway of the proletariat. I mean, I again, I hear here what we've said before. That, you know, and I was what I was trying to convey when I was talking about Latin America. Me being an immigrant who lives here, who works here, who makes it trying to make a living here. Yeah. Uh, that you know, uh, it has to be you know first and foremost like uh, your immediacy, your localized stuff, and then um, you know, like I can't worry what happens in you know like uh, what other people are doing in other places, you know, like I ha I can only control what it's in front of me, you know, my contributions here. Um, and, you know, this is why when COVID happened towards the end, when I was realizing the, the bullshit of nonprofit stuff, because <laughs> I was, you know, I learned my lessons there uh, in, that, yeah. in that organization. And that, um, you know, unless we organize and take, political action, action that takes power and control of things, you know, and the only thing I can do is to do it here. <laughs> and then hopefully can spread it and other people take notice, you know, but that's the only thing I can control, you know, and, and that applies to national borders, right? And, you know, like, that's why I have a problem where people keep, you know, posting things about Palestine and stuff and, and but not doing anything here, you know, to fight our own ruling class, you know, and, you know, it starts at a local level, you know, and then it grows from there. Yeah, and I think you're referring to the statement, which I think we both have talked about. The proletariat of each country must, of course, first settle matters with its own bourgeoisie. Very much agree with that. Um, that That is what I think how it's going to play out um, and how it kind of has to play out. Um, the, the other thing that I thought was important is we... He says, we trace the more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society. And this is, I think, is an important notion is that civil war is not just something to, to for the future. But he's seeing 
civil war or they're seeing civil war as a constant feature of capitalist society. And I agree with that. He's just saying that most of the time it's veiled. <laughs> Much of the time we're not fighting that civil war, but the war is ongoing because we have two oppositional sides fighting each other. If one side is fighting harder than the other, it doesn't change the fact that there is a fight. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a matter of saying that that one side in their fight to control the other is increasingly leading us into a dead end, into a dead end that cannot be gotten out unless the other side that is being held down put punches out. And, and he also, he uses that word violent. Like that's, I think the idea that this is going to be done peacefully or it's not there, it's going to require, um, it's a war and it's going to require, um, the things that are required to win wars, although I think a working class war, I don't know, there'll be some differences, but most of the features that we, that we associate of weapons, of occupying territory, of, uh, of organization, and, and of injuring and hurting, possibly killing, those are all gonna be features of fighting a war, um, of fighting this war. They're part of our current war, because we are facing, and you can, I think what Pfizer and Moderna are doing are part of that war against us. And as people are dying of heart attacks and there's now adult death syndrome, like what is it, sudden adult death? Like, I don't know what you call that other than victims of that class war where we are just sitting there and basically allowing ourselves to be put in the gas chambers um, or the injection chambers in this case. So, you know, those, those are some things I see in, what he's talking about there. Um, and those are the terms of the fight, in my opinion. All right, like, that's, that again is something that I think often turns off certain people when, at least when I have conversations with them, this notion that, you know, violence, right? And that word uh, in revolution evokes violence. And, you know, um, because, you know, I think often we lack an understanding of how history moves and what power is, what underwrites power. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I personally have this massive issue with something I hear among the circles that I interact with that it, about uh, manifesting good things, you know. I, I understand the psychology, right? Like I understand that thinking, you know, your, your frame of mind is important, but, you know, just good thoughts are not going to change things. You know, we're going to need actions and our actions are going to have a reaction, you know, by the powers that be. And, and, and that alone, you know, if you don't, if you're not prepared to respond to the, the violence that underwrites the system, then, you know, you're not in it to actually fight the system that we're trying to destroy. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, George Jackson um, said this quote in Blood, Blood in My Eyes, I think, uh, and that, you know, there people die every day as a result of this system. People get bombed. We only get propagandized at certain times for a specific reason. We become aware, like Ukraine. Ukraine is not new. There's masses of people dying on the world as a result of capitalism. And so what he says is that maybe it's time to invite others to join the dying. Because, you know, in, in you know, you know, I, I don't want to kill. I hate guns. I hate the idea of that. But I'm, a, again, that's my word of the day. I am acutely aware that the, the world functions in a certain way. You know, the power, the, the people who hold power 
are some of the most vicious, violent, disgusting, you know, humans or beings, you know, that that exist because they know Obama did it, Biden is doing it, Trump did it, Clinton did it, Reagan, Nixon, all name all the presidents of, of this country. You know, like that's why, like I, I get furious when people ask me who's your favorite president in the U.S. You know, or they want to talk to me about democracy in this country. When, when has there ever been democracy? For whom? Yeah. You know, and, and so, um, again, if, whether we like it or not, there will be violence. It's a, and, and then uh, Kwame Ture also talks about that. It's a matter of why violence is happening. What purpose is blood being shed for? He says. Yeah. That, yeah. And and in that regard part of fighting the civil war is about building, about building something that will be need to be preserved and is the basis for that new society. So I think it is easy for us to get focused on just weapons, but like you said, it's why. So the, the civil war is also going to be about building those alternative institutions, just in the same way that, and as we hear about in Ukraine, one of the reasons Russia is having some trouble sometimes in moving forward through some of the parts of Donbass is the last, since 2014, the US and Ukrainians in that region were building lines of defenses all throughout that region in preparation for an invasion. And I think that's how we have to see part of what our alternative is, that sort of society we're building is new trenches for a different kind of society. I think that's beautiful what you said that, you know, to not lose sight of that, that, you know, we're trying to protect something we're built, we're building. Okay. Hitherto, every form of society, I guess this will be the last part because it's long and it gets us to the end here. Hitherto, every form of society has been based as we have already seen on the antagonism of oppressing and oppressed classes. But in order to oppress a class, certain conditions, certain conditions must be assured to it under which it can at least continue its slavish existence. The serf in the period of serfdom raised himself to the membership in the commune, just as the, bourge the petty bourgeois under the yoke of feudal absolutism managed to develop into, a, into the bourgeoisie. The modern labor, on the contrary, instead of rising with the process of industry, sinks deeper and deeper below the conditions of existence of his own class. He becomes a pauper and pauperism develops more rapidly than population and wealth. And here it becomes evident that the bourgeoisie is unfit any longer to be the ruling class in society and to impose its conditions of existence upon society as an overriding law. It is unfit to rule because it is incompetent to assure an existence to its slave within, its, within his slavery, because it cannot help letting him sink into such a state that it, has, that it has to feed him instead of being fed by him. Society can no longer live under this bourgeoisie. In other words, its existence is no longer compatible with society. The essential conditions for the existence and for the sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition for capital is wage labor. Wage labor rests exclusively on competition between the laborers. The advance of industry whose involuntary promoter is the bourgeoisie replaces isolation of the laborers due to competition by the revolutionary combination due to association. The development of modern industry therefore cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which the bourgeois produces on which the bourgeoisie produces and appropriates products. What the bourgeoisie therefore produces above all are its own grave diggers. Its fall and victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable.
that was that last line that I talked about last episode, which is, I do believe the bourgeoisie's fall is inevitable. I do not believe the working class rises. And that's what common ruin, you know, but that's, and that there's been a long history of revolutionaries trying to just basically put the best foot forward and inspire people. I don't believe in inspiration any longer, at least inspiration that is not truth. Inspiration bound and has to be held in what is true. And that, that I believe in that inspiration. I do not believe in the inspiration of attaboy, you know, in which I think the left has a long history of trying to do to, to, to fix its own head into thinking it's doing something okay and get, and making progress and to try to like make it believe that it's going to build an army of people who get fooled into thinking things are better than they are. So there's a lot if he says there about the inevitability of this. And I, I actually agree with that, but I have to fixate on that last line. No, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, the, the ruin of the capitalists will come. <laughs> it's a matter of whether we go down with them or we try right. fucking try to get a hold of the levers, you know, uh, so we don't go off the cliff with them. Um, you know, it can happen shortly. It can happen in five, ten years. It will happen, I think, in my lifetime. You know, some sort of, you know. Um, event um and i do i wanted to go back a little bit to um you want to see the thing yeah uh, just the pauperism and you know, basically poverty right the immiseration and you know i just want to talk a little bit about like 2008 right about 10 million people like a bunch of families lost their homes um, you know, I know personally people that are still paying, you know, whose lives were thrown upside down as a result. People who are working beyond their retirement age, um, you know, and who are renters now, you know, and, and that, you know, if you understand 2008, then you understand the fundamental flaws of this system, you know, and, and how nobody's really making money just from salary. You know, like our, our real wages has been stagnant for decades. Yeah. You know, no one in the reason 2008 happened was because the only way people could, you know, gamble to make, you know, some more, bring in some more money was to buy a house, engage in that gambling system. You know, and, and so my point is that in reality, we already are pillaged, we're distracted, we're fucked. You know, we have been for the last 40 years. You know, they've invented credit, you know, you know, in the, you know, this credit in this country is so free flowing. It has been compared to like where, where I grew up, you know, and but that's changing too down there. You know, yeah. the, the market forces are coming in big time. You know, people are spending beyond their means, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that our condition is bad. It's horrible. Like if you actually examine the fundamentals. You know, and, and the, the next crisis is going to make it even worse. And, and, and so we are, you know, I, that's why I, I, I am serious when I say that I, I consider myself a landless peasant in, in this city of San Francisco, you know, and yet I have to go serve the fuckers that, you know, you know, are, have more proximity to power. You know, and, and you know, uh, how is that in that feudal order? <laughs> You know, how is that not, you know, like uh, enslavement, you know, 
and, and, and I think a lot of people know that something's wrong. Something doesn't add up. You know, I, I talk to people who work way more than me, like recently coworkers who, you know, work two jobs, two, three jobs and their bank account doesn't, doesn't rise up, you know, doesn't, you know, and then, and then it's on us, you know, to like be really frugal, you know, it's your fault if you don't, if you don't make it through, it's your fault, you know, and, but the reality is that this system is fundamentally rotten and it's, it's made to immiserate us and it's only going to get worse. And they know this. And that's why, you know, they're installing these systems like facial recognition at San Francisco airport, you know, because they, they will come after people like us who want to speak up, you know, at some point, you know, not necessarily in, in the antiquated way, you know, that they, like Operation Condor in Latin America, when they follow people and kill them across the world, but they will essentially kill you from participating in society and force you your hand. And that's why COVID, the COVID lies, the COVID vaccines, the COVID mandates is so scary because people were complying about that and they don't see the implications about that. And, and yes, they will come after people like us who speak up, who will probably never shut the fuck up, but you know, they will come after everyone or most people at least the great majority you know and and i hope it's not too late by the time people realize that we need to rise up and, and do something about it yeah they will do operation condor again they do it now and they're going to do it again later on a on a larger scale so the reason i'm convinced of that is one i know how violent they are um and how determined they are to stay in power they'll destroy the planet to stay in power and secondly when people's venmos accounts and paypal's account are snapped off like that what they're trying to say is, we tried to tell you politely to shut the fuck up. If you don't get that message, you, we, we're running out of options to do it the nice way. If it wasn't enough for us to just snap out your PayPal, and pen, uh, PayPal or Venmo or make it so that you couldn't work in the digital economy, then we need to send another message if you continue to, to do it. So Operation Condor is definitely not just it's going to be on the cards. It's, it's going to be generalizable, a feature for oppression violence and killing off of people is going to be a piece of, of doing that. How they do that, I think they were gonna have, they're gonna, they will have more tools. Um, the, the thing I guess I keep coming back to and I wish I could end on a happier note. Um, Cause I, this is an important, this is, this document was written to inspire. I do believe, you know, to say, hey, revolution is possible. Um, but at this point, I wanna come down to these lines here because if we're talking about the possibility, not the inevitability of proletarian revolution, then the words that Marx puts most in, con in distinction to each other are right here. He says that there is one force within the working class which produces, let's see, how is it? I'm sorry, yeah, which produces isolation of labors and, and is about competition. So workers in competition with each other enforces more their isolation. And we understand that in terms of also ideologically, in terms of the divisions between national divisions and gender divisions and racial divisions and all sorts of divisions, you know, wage divisions we can have. All of those serve to isolate laborers. But, and Marx says, and also all of those serve to see us as competing with one another. And he's saying, we are actually competing with each other. Like there is a competition for jobs. So he's saying, and those, those forces act that force of capitalism or the part of capitalism acts to isolate us. He goes, the part of it that makes the revolution possible are those that lay the foundation for revolutionary combination due to association. 
So he talks about combination and association as revolutionary and isolation and competition as counter-revolutionary. Kenny, what are going to be the next features for workers in the next 10 years? Are they going to be ones of association and combination? Or are they going to be ones of isolation and competition? I think we've already talked about, you know. Like, it fe- I mean, it almost feels like it's a wrap. Yeah. Like, when I read that, yeah. I go, I, what I'm going to ask is, and I'm asking this of you, but I mean, if, if you're a Marxist, we have to answer this question of how will revolutionary combination and association be preserved in the face of the fourth industrial revolution? Because if it is not, and if we can't figure that out, then there is no revolution possible no. in terms of a Marxist revolution, the one that is based on the idea of contending classes and history moving in that way. Then somebody else better be right. Somebody else has to have a better vision of how we get there. That has nothing to do with capitalism almost. No. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's right there in black and white as far as I'm concerned. And for me, it's again, I'm going to try to end on a good note. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the pitchfork, right? Right there, you know. And and we're very, we're pretty committed to the one on isolation and competition, you know. And you know, like I guess we hate binaries, but I don't see it any other way. <laughs> I I don't, you know. And um, I think we know, we know historically, we know in our nature that history is in numbers, right? Like, sorry, uh, safety, safety is in numbers. Yeah. Yep. You know, like when I do this show, I, I, you know, like one of the reasons I don't edit things is because um, I know someday they want to come for me. Anything I've said here, they'll use whatever way they want. Yeah. I, I am acutely aware of that. You know, I'm not naive. Um, I do this out of concern, love, you know, out of love for humanity, nature, mm-hmm. uh, myself, my family, mm-hmm. the people who will come after me. But I do understand that the risk, you know, if if we don't find numbers, if we don't, we're, you know, like the people, like I think of uh, uh, John Trudell, you know, uh, if you look at his history, how even his family was suspiciously killed and, you know, other people who have survived, you know, I think they've survived because they had people behind them. Some of them. Other ones were straight up killed. But either way, there is a risk, you know, to change the world, to, 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 to speak up, to, to preserve your, your own truth and reality and live outside the matrix uh, of things. And there is a cost, but there is also a beauty worth fighting for for me. You know, like, yes, I... I you know, I struggle, I, I'm neurotic in some ways, you know, about all this stuff. I'm always reading, but there is some beauty in, in living in a sober state, you know, and because then the relationships mean more. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I think we all have a sense of that, you know, like the, of the people who are very, very cunning and utilitarian and want to advance themselves in society and they're fake, basically. We know that. Right. We you know? talked about that in the John Jacobo episode. Yeah. And and so, you know, like, I want to live 
and, and that's why I know, you know, even like you and I, because of the circumstances of life, we haven't connected. I know I can count on you, you know? And I know the people who are around me and have stuck around, even though they disagree, that I can count on them. And, you know, I do hope, and I get emotional because it has been a long road, but I look around and I still have people there, you know, who, who are gonna stick around. And, and there is a pattern, you know, these people see beyond the bullshit. They may not be intellectual giants, but they see beyond the bullshit. You know, my family, when I was in my liberal bullshit, they were the rock. They disagreed with me. You know, like even when I was talking down to them and they helped me together and now like they speak a lot of truth. So that's my hope. That my hope is not um, on intellectualizing everything. It's just being human, you know, and, and fight, fight, really following your gut because I do think there is something human that I want to hold on to that people know something's wrong. It's just a matter of whether you're willing to do something about it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that that's, I guess, where I, I hold on to, you know, the people who are gonna stick around, who wanna live a sober life, who don't wanna live facades, you know, who don't wanna lie to themselves, who understand that they are wage slaves. My, my mother, my brother, I'm able to, talk to, able to talk to them about this stuff now because I'm not condescending because I actually listen to them. I, I actually listen to their opinions, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and they have a lot of truth and they've, they've shaped a lot of my political awareness in the last four years, more than ever before, more than when I was in college. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's why I mean like, not everyone who is part of this revolution is gonna read Marx, but they're gonna have to understand the fundamentals, <laughs> how shit runs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where some of us fit in our role in, in this is to try to make it, you know, palatable, understandable, accessible. You know, at least that's how I see my mission, you know, to do this. And I'm gonna annoy some people along the way, but if you, you know, I, I need uh, we need the ones who are gonna stick around. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't have any more to say than that. I mean, and you made it pretty obvious that your family has. You talk about them a lot on our shows, right? Uh, how, how much they've impacted you in your own understanding of things, um, in relationship to how to reading about these things. So that is what we're urging people to do: is read and listen, um, but understand that there is no individual road out of this, and we can say this. I mean. Maybe we can be obvious. So black versus white. Yes. Not, let's not do that. You know, national versus, you know, not an immigrant versus person who's born in this country. Oh, let's not get separated by that. But what about those people who say, what, a, what about vaccinated people? And they were shedding spike proteins. Get over it. You know, what about um, right wing, right wingers and their loving dissenters? Get over it. It can, there can be some things challenged there, but get over it because those are folks it, we're going to need to what I mean by get over it, I think too much of the left has jettisoned its principles to try to unite. But we don't have to not be ourselves, but we have to be prepared to let people be them, their, themselves. And if we're not prepared to do that, it ain't fucking worth it. And we're not fighting for anything else other than a new source of control. 
So, but it will require combination. I'm just a, co a collection, an association. And if we think we're getting through this on our own, we got another thing coming. Thanks, Kenny. Um, good episode again. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> and again, I appreciate what you said there at the end. And um, we still have a, a walk to go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jessica's going to be back next week, folks. Um, and we'll see what we do then. I think actually there's an episode we'll be doing with Allison next week. Let's see. Okay. So that does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog, what-left-s-left.webnode.com. Uh, you can find past episodes to this podcast channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you've heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our nine platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram. You can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. If you'd like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, uh, contact us through our blog. And certainly, we definitely welcome any other people's interpretation, like Jeff Strahl and uh, Coming Revolution and Jessica. Uh, we definitely welcome what you would make of some of the stuff we've read. I would really like to hear people in the comments refer to that in the last episode but if there's differences you have of how we've read things this episode please let us know um because we welcome that and uh, i would say trolls won't be censored by i'll probably ignore them <laughs> yes but we don't have many trolls i mean that's in other areas like bit shoot i think has had some trolls for us and things like that we've had a few trolls in youtube and whatever it's like troll got a troll um anyway great to see you kenny and Thanks everyone for being part of this and I'll see you, we'll see you both or see everyone next week. <laughs>